Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This is Make It Plain. M-I-P. With Masamela Matsumo. Mark Thompson. Make It Plain. Get woke. Ladies and gentlemen, we welcome you back to Make It Plain, the podcast. We have a very special guest in studio with us today. He is the author of a brand new book. But first of all, we know and love him for all of the work he has been doing on so many civil rights cases, particularly cases that impact us from the point of view where African-Americans have been slain by police officers, be it Trayvon Martin, be it Michael Brown, be it so many others. And he's written a book, Open Season, Legalized Genocide of Colored People. And that's a strong word. We're going to get into it with our dear friend and brother, Benjamin Crump. Good to see you, man. Hey, Mark, thank you for coming honored here. to be here, man. No, I'm honored to have you, man. And, and thank you for always being there over the years, using your influence, whether it's Trayvon, whether it's Michael Brown, whether it's Tamir Rice, whether it's Pamela Turner, whether it's Stephon Clark. You've been on all of them, man. Terrence Crutcher, Marquise McLaughlin, Corey Jones. Every time I've ever called you and said, <laughs> we need to talk about this issue, you opened up your platform and you gave these families a voice. So thank you from the no, bottom of you, my man. heart, man. Thank you. Well, no, likewise, thank you for including me and thank you for honoring us by being here and thank you for all the work that you're doing, man. Let's begin there. Ben, when did you get or feel the calling to even take on cases like this? Because this is this is an exceptional calling. And I'll tell you, Mark, in the book, we start off there, even though it's not autobiographical, it's really about the call to try to prevent these open season killings of black and brown people and disenfranchised people. But when I was in uh, middle school, the fourth grade is when, in my little hometown of Lumberton, that they uh, got around to all deliberate speed from Brown versus the Board of Education, where they integrated the schools. And so we then got bused over to the new school in the white community with the new facilities and the new books and the technology. And it was profound because... You know, you have little children, white and black, we're children. We play together, we start coming together. 
but there was always those barriers that reminded us that we didn't even realize at that point that we were separated by right. something that, you know, nine and ten year olds didn't understand. And it was most prevalent at lunch hour. Mm. All the little black children, we would have to get in the free lunch line because our parents couldn't afford to give us money and all this stuff, so we'll be in the free lunch line mm. with our lunch tickets. And then the more affluent children, their parents would get them money, and they can go buy a la carte food where they can get wow. what children really want, hamburgers, pizza, right. and all right. this right. stuff. Right. Right. And so we had to get whatever the Board of Education said was of nutritional value. <laughs> and so the little black children, we were happy to be eating, but we yeah. had to stand in this long line. Mm. And i never forget this little white girl, and I won't call her name, but... We were in the back of the line, and we were, I remember just being really hungry that day. And this little white girl and one of my neighbors named Keenan, who lived in the projects where we lived at, they came over to us, and they started talking to us, and we thought Keenan and them was trying to skip. She said, no, we were just coming to see what y'all was up to. And the little white girl said, well, we were about to go get a la carte lunch, like that right there. Uh-huh. And she said she's going to treat Keenan. And... She pulled out a $100 bill, and we were shocked. And she said it was her money, and we didn't believe it because we said, you know, if you got that kind of money, you must be coming to pay for health insurance or something to school, but you just can't have a $100 bill. Uh, And my mother worked two jobs, Mark, in a factory and then doing laundry in the hotels. It would take her a whole week to make $100. And this little white nine-year-old girl had $100, and she said it was her allowance that she gets it every month and that she can do anything she wants with it. And we didn't believe her. And to prove to us that she really could do whatever she wanted with the money, she said, I'll bother y'all lunch. And she did. Mm. And so I was just blown away. And when we were on the bus going back across the tracks to the south side, I remember thinking my mother told me that because of Thurgood Marshall, and Brown versus the Board of Education was the reason we could go to the new school mm-hmm. and get mm-hmm. the best education. Because I kept thinking why the certain people in certain side of town have it so good and certain people on my side of town right. have it so challenging. Right, right. And when my mother told me about Thurgood Marsha, I said, I'm going to be like Thurgood Marsha mm-hmm. to try to fight to make it better for my community and people who look like me. And from that day to this one, that's what I've been fighting for, and that was my dream at fourth grade, nine years old, to be like Thurgood Marshall. Wow, wow. Did you ever think, though, I mean, it's one thing to deal with general civil rights cases, but did you ever think that you would be dealing with so many modern-day lynchings? You know, it's unfortunate. I thought when I became a lawyer, Mark, we would have evolved. Right that we would have gone further. I thought we would have different civil rights issues that we would be facing and not the same old lynching-type cases, for lack of a better word, because that's what's happening when you think about these police shootings or even worse, these stand-your-ground shootings based on this racist Jim Crow law. You would think that we would be beyond that. The Trayvon Martin case is how... We all knew you, but how most people got to see you and know you. How did you first get involved in that case? His cousin, attorney Patricia Jones, and her co-worker, attorney Tyrone Williams, called me, and they I was in court fighting for the life of another little black boy, and they just kept blowing me up in court, 
and you know I'm busy so most people <laughs> know that you know you call me out on answer leave a minute I'll get back to you when I can but they kept blowing court, me right, up right. yeah and so when we got a lunch break I finally called back like what's up why y'all keep calling me they called like 20 times and they said well we got to get you on this case uh this little black boy was killed. Then they said, well, maybe it's better that we let you hear it from his father. Then they put Tracy Martin on the phone. Okay. And from that day to this one, I still can't describe the sound that I heard coming on the mm. other end of that phone. I mean, mm. he was truly heartbroken. Mm-hmm. You know, black men get a bad rap that we don't love our children. We ain't involved in our right, children. Right, right, right. It was no question. When you heard how this sense of... Uh, just despair in his voice, almost like he was whining when he told me about his son was uh, coming home from the 7-Eleven with a bag of Skittles and a can of iced tea and the neighborhood watch volunteers shot and killed him. You, you just knew that this man was a loving father yeah, yeah. and that you had to try to do something to help him, even though I didn't think he needed me at the time because I just thought, how can you have a unarmed teenager lying dead on the ground and you have the self-confessed killer with the proverbial smoking gun still in his hand That's right. and he not get arrested? That should have been open and shut. It should have been open and shut because think about people in our community, Mark. They get arrested for little thing with stuff nobody has any evidence at all. Right. It, it was an innuendo. Somebody said That's you right. fit the script. You know how many wrongful conviction cases right. I do a That's year right. based yeah. on right. no evidence at all, but yet when this young boy was shot in the heart on the ground, they let George Zimmerman go home and sleep in his bed at night and accepted his narrative as the gospel. Mm-hmm. Well, and again, if it hadn't been for you, it wouldn't have gotten the publicity that it got. The arrest probably never would have been made. Yeah. We have this most recent case, you know, everybody knows you record podcasts. Chris Colbert is here from DCP Entertainment who puts all this together for us. You know, everybody knows podcasts are recorded. The likelihood that by the time this airs, the likelihood is great that another African-American will be killed by police. It's already happened. We got a call in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and it's starting to get attention where a young man, unfortunately, stole a chicken, you know, a whole chicken from the grocery store. Conceivably, he was trying to get food for his family. Of course. Uh, He's running away, and the deputy sheriff shoots him in the back. Lord have mercy. And it's unbelievable because she's saying, well, obviously you don't kill people over property crimes, but if a person stole food out the grocery store, you know what it's about. You don't have to be a, right. you know, a genius to know that this person is hungry or trying to get food for some people who are hungry. Yeah. So why kill him? Yeah. Is that what we've come to in America? That's chapter two of your book. Police don't shoot white men in the back. Police don't shoot white men in the back. When I give speeches, Mark, as I often do, I ask the audience, I say, can you tell me black people that you have heard of that have been killed as a result of police brutality or shot in the back running away. And I get all kind of quickly. They come out, they say, hashtag Corey Jones, hashtag Walter Scott, hashtag, you know, Tamir. I mean, the list goes on and on, Terrence Crutcher. And then I stop them and I say, now tell me about a white person. Name a white person. And the room becomes stark. Quiet. I mean, crickets. And Mark... I just wait. I say, I'll give you a minute. 
right. because it's so rare, if ever, that they shoot white men in the back, but yet, or white people, but black people, it's almost like a cliche. We hear every day in our communities that they shot a little black boy running away from them because they were in fear of their life. Well, we hear every day, but then we don't, too. Aren't there been literally dozens of Trayvons and Michael Browns and Sandra Blands and now Tatiana Jefferson's every day that we just just don't, don't even make the news? Absolutely. For every Trayvon, for every Michael Brown, there are at least 50 that you never hear of. you got to remember, the police average killing about 1,500 people a year in America, right. which is mind-boggling. And... Unfortunately and tragically, even though we only make up 13% of the population, we make up about half the people they're killing. You argue in the book, In Open Season, Legalized Genocide of Colored People, Benjamin Crump, you argue that this is one of the aspects of genocide. Is a it not? Absolutely. And, and I want to digress just for a second, Please. Mark, to thank you and your audience because Amazon has reported to us for the last two weeks straight We've been one of the best-selling pre-ordered books that they have all over the world. So we're proud of that. But that means uh, that our people want to know. They want this knowledge. And one of the reasons we did this book was to make sure that people got the knowledge. Ben Franklin said democracy is like two wolves and a lamb voting on what to have for lunch. (laughs) You know, you ain't got to be a rocket scientist to know who's going to win that vote. Right. But then he said liberty, Mark, is making sure that lamb is well-armed to protest that vote. And so with open season, what we're trying to do is make sure the young lambs in communities of color mm-hmm. are well-armed to protest the school-to-prison pipeline, mm-hmm. well-armed to protest voter suppression, well-armed to protest racist Jim Crow laws like Stand Your Ground, well-armed to protest environmental racism where Children living in South Central Los Angeles has 30% lung capacity of children living in Santa Monica, California. Mm -hmm, Uh, mm -hmm. We're armed to protest this mass incarceration. What many people don't understand, as we point out in the book Open Season, is that women of color, most people when they go to prison or jail, they worry about losing their constitutional rights. Well, women of color, they have to worry about losing their reproductive rights Mm. because as late as 2014, in the liberal state of California, they were having forced sterilizations of black and Hispanic women. Wow. They were coercing them, and they were having surgeries that they didn't even know that people were sterilizing them. And then as late as 2017, there was a judge in Tennessee who said to a black man who was being sentenced for 20 years that I would knock 15 years off your sentence if you were to be sterilized. Mm. They're doing this legally. And so I remember my inspiration in large part for writing this book. When we were in Ferguson, Mark, and I know you were there too, there was these young kids, and, you know, they were protesting everywhere. And I remember specifically this young boy when the National Guard had those uh, assault rifles sent a mass on them. He walked up yelling at the National Guard. I mean, his nose was almost touching the tip of the uh, assault rifle. And he said, 
hey, go ahead and kill me now while the camera's rolling. Y'all kill us when they ain't here. Right. The world, kill me now so the world can see how y'all killing us. Wow. And that just was riveting to me. And I remember thinking, he's right. It is important for the world to see how they're killing us mm -hmm. and not just killing us on the streets, but more poignantly, how they're killing us every day in every city in every state in courtrooms across America where they are killing us with these trumped-up felony convictions. And I do mean right. trumped-up. Right. I mean, it's what we describe as killing us softly. Mm. And all of those are spokes in the genocide wheel. Oh, absolutely. And, and so you asked me that, and I do need to talk about genocide specifically. But just on that point of the prison piece, and please include this, I did a show once. And we didn't plan this. Uh, Charlie Rangel was on. Mm -hmm. He was still in Congress. And we were talking about a subject. But then we got into the disproportionate incarceration in the system. And one of the things that happens a lot of times is that black defendants are, co use the word coercion, coerced yes. to plead. Yep. And he even had a statistic. I mean, you're talking about in the 80th and 90th percentile where our people, yeah. You know, says jury of your peers. We don't even get to that point. Right. So you have people in prison today whose cases were never fully taken to trial, mm -hmm. examined, debated before a jury, argued before a jury. So they technically are guilty yeah. only by virtue of the fact that they were coerced because people say, listen, you know, you're not going to every jury is going to convict you. You're black. You're not going to make it. Yeah. Plead it out and go down. But you don't even know. How many of these people actually committed some of the crimes they've been accused of committing? Yeah, you know, the sad reality is this, Mark, and I don't have the specific statistics, but right. we will get them. If you are a person of color and you're charged with a crime and there's no evidence at all against you, but you go to trial, there's a great likelihood you're going to get convicted of something. Whether it's the charge or the lesser included charge, they're going to convict you of something because, you know, it's like Malcolm X said, TV is one of the most powerful drugs ever created. Mm -hmm. You know, TV have you thinking things you don't even know you're thinking. That's it right. gets in your subconscious mind. And what do you see constantly on TV? You see uh, this law and order mentality where the police and the prosecutors are always right and the little people of color are always wrong. Right, or right, you right. have a forensic file where the police always solve the crime and it's always us who are guilty. Or you see on cable news constantly or the newspapers where the black people are always guilty or nefarious or something under legitimate. And so what we have is when you go in the courtroom, people have this all in their subconscious mind. And so when they're listening to the credibility of the police who they told always tells the truth, they're there to protect and serve <laughs> right, us right, right. and everything. You know, in our community, we say not the police we know. Not they the normally right. trying to put us in jail right. and never trying to give us the benefit of the doubt or the benefit of consideration. But you take all of that into account. And so when you're standing there and you're facing five or ten years in prison against a jury of anything but your peers, and they say, well, we'll give you this plea deal. You'll just get a year probation, but you now got to plead to a felony that's right. Conviction. That's right. That's right. And you say, I dodged the bullet. But right. what many of our people don't realize is once you are convicted felon, your life is changed forever. forever. 
forever. And I have to make this point because, and we talk about it in the book, you go to any courtroom in America, you ain't got to take Ben Crump's word for it at all. You just sit in the back of the courtroom and do what Chuck D said on Public Enemy, see how they run the justice, and you just watch. Little white boys and girls come in with very similar fact patterns as little black and brown boys and girls. And, you know, the little white children get a slap on the wrist. wrist. And they get escorted out the courtroom, and they can live out the fulfillment of their destiny and uh, achieve the American dream, whereas our children get taken to the corner of the courtroom, fingerprinted, handcuffed, and convicted of that felony conviction. And we all hear the things, Mark, about you can't vote anymore, you can't serve on jury duty, you can't serve in the military. Well, that's just the tip of the iceberg with the consequences that come along with being a convicted felon. If you're a person of color and you're poor, I mean, that convicted felon makes it daunting for you ever to be able to legitimately make a living and support your family, keep food on the table yeah, and stuff. Yeah. If you were trying to go to college, you can't get a federal loan or pair grant because as a convicted felon, they don't allow you to get it. If you want to be a teacher as a convicted felon, you can't be certified as a nurse. You can't be certified as a real estate and can be certified. Brick Mason can't be certified Sisters can't even, in many states, be certified as a beautician if they are convicted yeah, felon. Felons. And worst of all, man, if you are a convicted felon and you've spent any time in prison in many states in America, you can't even get life insurance. It's like you're the walking dead. They just ain't giving you the death certificate yet. And so we have to, like we say in open season, not let this racist criminal justice system define our people. We have to say, regardless if you have a convicted felon stop, we still believe in you. We still love you. We still think you got redeeming qualities to offer our community. And so we have to embrace our people because the criminal justice system has them as a target. Speaking of the disparity in terms of, you know, white and black folk, we see that glaringly with the opioid crisis, don't we? How that is being treated as, as, a, health as a public health issue. But when we had drug epidemics in our community, it was treated as a criminalized issue. We were all criminalized for it. Absolutely. And you know, it's so ironic, Mark, and we talk in the book about this here. You know, it's so ironic that the government has legalized marijuana now, and so literally, they are selling weed to make money to pay their bills now in America. But when black and brown people were selling weed to make money to pay their bills, right. they put us all in prison. That's right. So there should be a proclamation that until they let all the black and brown people and other people out who are languishing in prisons for nonviolent, non-violent uh, selling of marijuana, the government shouldn't be able to make no money off of it. Well, that's just like we had the numbers. Now they got the lottery. We, you know, we, <laughs> we sell tickets out in front of the stadium. Now they got StubHub. Mm-hmm. So everything they, they criminalized with us, they then took from us and then made it legitimate. It's legalized genocide of colored people, the intellectual justification of discrimination. And we have a chapter here talking about legislative intent. And I remember learning in law school, they said, no, no, we can predict who the criminals are going to be if we get the right, what's going to be defined as criminal. If we define everything in culture of black and brown people and disenfranchised people as criminal, we can predict they're going to be the criminal. Like we have a story in here about saggy pants law. 
You know who they talking about course, on right, that right, there. Right. And this brother loses his life because they stop him for the saggy pants law, and that encounter leads to his death. Yeah. And it's this type of stuff that we have to educate our young lambs and community of color on right, right, that right. they're targeted. And I do want to get back to genocide when you think it's appropriate. Let's do it now because I think it's important that you maybe even define that, folks, because some people see genocide in only one context. They see it in the context of the Holocaust. They may even see it in terms of what happened with Rwanda. Mm-hmm. Some are saying what you know the Turks are about to do to the Kurds is just that. But they only see it in the context of a mass, spontaneous event. One event where folk are just killed up. Uh-huh. But genocide can be spread out. It can take many, many forms. Absolutely. Even in the book I noticed talk about the forms of death. There's more than one form of death even. You know, Absolutely. Dr. King talked about you we can be walking around and be walking dead. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so in many ways, open season, the legalized genocide of colored people is an extension of what the great Paul Robeson in 1951, where he was the most famous African-American in the world at the time, he and W.B. Du Bois, one of the founders of the NAACP and the first black to graduate from Harvard with a Ph.D., and other black leaders in America went to Paris, France, right. during the United Nations Convention. And this was in the aftermath of World War II, where all the war-torn countries were making petitions about the atrocities and how they had been marked for genocide. And these leaders went and they presented a petition at the United Nations saying, we charge genocide, a document that stated the government was killing Negroes in America, and it was a genocidal situation. And they made the case based on the killings and the lynchings and the rapings almost daily in the 40s and the early 50s of blacks and how the law legalized it and promulgated the facilitation of the injustices. And they used the definition of the United Nations, and they said that uh, act or acts committed with the intent to destroy in whole or in part a group based on national, ethnic, racial, or religious statuses. They made that case so compelling, and they said that the United States government either complicit of or responsible for the genocidal situation to Negroes in America. And I submit in this book, not much has changed in those 70 years. And that's why we're planning to go back to Geneva, Switzerland, and present our findings in 2020 about the situation is still the same. And they continue, the courts, the executive branch, and the legislative branch conspire either consciously or unconsciously in the genocidal situation for people of color in America today. You die, Ben Crump writes in the book Open Season, you die when you are doing your job and suddenly someone tries to dehumanize you with epithets or threaten you and you fear you might not see another day. We talk about all the resources we don't have. Now, I was going to point out just on that, they're talking about what Please. they say in genocide on mental conditions. Yes. They talk about mentally killing people, right. and they also talk about literally how you can impact 
the mental health of a people to where they feel and believe that the government is uh, correct and being able to dehumanize right, them right, right, and right. so forth. And I mean, they get into that in expansive language because that's what was happening in Rwanda. You know, they kept saying, this group here doesn't deserve to be citizens. Yeah, yeah. Stockholm Syndrome. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. So you're going to— You don't deserve equality. Right. You know you're not really equal to white people. Yeah, you don't you're not, You don't deserve nothing. Yeah, and so, I mean, it's a compelling case when you think about all the ways they have made black people feel that black lives don't matter— or they certainly don't matter as much as white people, especially when you consider that there are only 7% of black men in America, but yet we make up almost 50% of the people on death row. No, you're right. And, and all of those are, are forms of menticide, which is a part mm-hmm. of, of genocide. Yep. And, folks, we're talking about all of those, some of these things even, microaggressions that we see every day. I'm going through this thing now, man, lately. I don't know, maybe God meant for me to go through this for a reason. But lately, more and more, almost every day, if I'm in line somewhere, mm-hmm. just waiting in line in a store or whatever, a white person will just walk around me like I'm not even in line. <laughs> like you're invisible. That happens to me more and more all the time. Uh, and... I was in store the other day. I was trying to catch a train, and there was a white woman in front of me. And I said, ma'am, do you mind if I go in front of you? She had a lot of stuff. I said, you mind if I go in front of you? I have to catch this train. Uh-huh. And uh, she said, oh, sure, no problem. So the black cashier uh-huh. saw me go around her. Uh, I saw you jump in front of her. I said, no, no, no. She said, this is part of the brainwashing, the colonization. Yeah. I asked her, and she said it was okay. I don't believe you. You just jumped in front of that woman. Now, but nobody has ever said anything to a white person who jumps in front. I mean, sometimes you just feel like you glass. It just looks right through you. So not only does it have the effect on us of making us think we deserve that, Mm -hmm. but it has effect on others to make them think we deserve that and that they can treat us that way. Yeah, and it's racial battle fatigue, and you think about that, how that plays on our children and what they see about the value of their lives, especially when you look at all these court decisions. The court is complicit in so many things. You know, race silence does not mean you're race neutral. You know, that means if you see an injustice and you look the other way, then you have chosen injustice like neutrality in the face of injustice is injustice. You can't be a good person (laughs) and see evil and look the other way or say, well, I didn't uh, have slaves or I didn't put the (laughs) black people in prison, Uh, even though you're making millions of dollars off of the prison industrial complex. So you see all these things. But the United States Supreme Court, Mark, and it's important to know that I argue Throughout their history, they have always, no matter what the decisions have been rendered, to give people of color and marginalized people the most of injustice and the least of justice. Mm. In every situation, after the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, after the Civil War, the so-called Civil Rights Amendments, within 15 years, 20 years, the United States Supreme Court has completely neutralized all of them. Is the 13th Amendment itself problematic? I mean, doesn't yeah. that literally 
enable our incarceration? We put forth in the book that the Supreme Court was race silence after the Virginia State Supreme Court in the 13th Amendment that freed the slaves except but for criminal liability and criminal punishment. The Supreme Court of Virginia said, and I quote, Mm -hmm. when they were arguing that, you know, they're just creating laws to put black people back on the cotton fields and the plantations. They said, you have no rights when you are a criminal. Once we find you guilty of a crime, then you are a slave of the state. Mm. And Mm. that's still the law in America. That's still the law law of the land. So you are going to go back to Geneva. That is the goal. And and renew the petition that Robeson and Du Bois put out there. Yep, the Civil Rights Congress. It was a well-written document, but we have so much more to argue now because we can show the pattern and practice, not only of police conduct, but environmental racism, stuff that they did not argue then. Flint. Yeah, Flint, Newark, New Jersey, Puerto Rico. I mean, things that they didn't know about, but when President Obama's administration was trying to go after these toxic, polluting corporations in our community, calling our children mm-hmm. to get brain disease and lung disease and heart disease, all this stuff, you know, it was the courts that were blocking them and legalizing the discrimination of these companies being able to go in our communities, pollute our communities, but they won't live there. They won't let this happen in white communities, but in the black marginalized communities, the brown marginalized communities, it's okay. You mentioned, too, how one of the effects of genocide and menticide is that people think they deserve the treatment they get. I did an interview with Cheryl Underwood, and it came to mind. Yep. You got black professionals, black working people, working families, middle class folk, who pay their taxes. Yes. They pay the police salary. Yes. Now, if you and I, if some black folk hire us to do something and we don't do it and they paid us, they're going to say, Mark and Ben, y'all didn't do what I asked you to do. Yeah. You're not carrying out the service I hired you to do and we're going to have hell to pay. Absolutely. But I think it's part of that subconscious menticide. When we pay the police salary. Yep. And yet we allow or watch the police killing us. Yeah. I mean, we have to say, you work for us. Exactly. I mean, we pay as much tax as everybody else. And a lot of these urban communities, we pay even more. Exactly. Exactly. And it's the mentality. We have gotten so accustomed to not getting equal justice under the law that we are now accepting of it. And this is what this book is saying to many of our people, especially young people, don't accept it. The fact that America, this book, we want to make it not only a wake-up call for America, but we want to prevent these uh, killings on the streets, but more importantly in the courtrooms. And we want America not just to recite the Declaration of Independence, but but we want them to act like they believe it. You know, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equally, that they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that amongst them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that applies to little poor black and brown people, too, in America. That's right. That's absolutely right. Let me ask you this. A lot of conversation about what happened in the Amber Geiger trial and the death of our brother, Botham John. What's your reaction to the forgiveness and the hugging and all that that was going on in the courtroom? What are your thoughts about that? Well, obviously, uh, 
representing the family with Attorney uh, Lee Merritt and Attorney Daryl Washington. We're close to the situation, and we know the backstory okay. of Brant Jarv when he, uh, you know, had to experience his brother being killed. Right. Remember, this is his little brother who used to sleep in the yeah, bed with yeah. him, grew up with him. This was his idol, his hero. And so when Amber Geiger first went into his apartment and killed his brother, he hated Amber Geiger. I mean, he had real anger issues. Mm, mm. He dropped out of high school. Mm-hmm. He punched a hole in the wall. His mother and them had to call for counseling within their church because mm. they said, you know, we're Christian people. This is not our way, Brant. You can't live with this anger. You can't live with this anger all your life. It'll destroy you and kill you. So it was a, a process over a year that this kid had been dealing with this. And, you know, he had been getting all this counseling advice from the, his church and church leaders saying we have to forgive and so forth. So when he did that, right. it was a process him getting there, and he didn't know the cameras were rolling. He 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 thought this was okay. you know because they had already excused everybody from courtroom. They excused Amber Geiger's family, and this was the victim impact statement. And uh, he thought it was a private moment. So I think everybody should try to understand what this kid has been through. I got you. What about the judge though? Inappropriate. Yeah. yeah. Inappropriate. Can that, and, and the bailiff. So can any of that? be used by Geiger's team in any appeal or anything, do you think? I mean, it seems that's a very gray area. With what the judge did? Yeah. I don't think so. Okay. I think they they have other issues they think they can appeal on, but okay, I honestly okay. think the case is appeal-proof because okay, the fact that the judge allowed her to use the castle doctrine as a defense when it yeah. wasn't her castle was just asinine to me <laughs> and many other people. It was both of them jaws castle. She was at the wrong apartment, and she's saying self-defense because I broke into his apartment and shot him. It just flies in the face of common sense and the other thing is the sentence you know yeah is is the fact that she only got 10 years the punishment does not fit the crime especially when as we talked about you got brothers and sisters languishing in prisons for decades for selling marijuana then killed nobody non-violent offenses the witness that was killed yes joshua brown people aren't comfortable with that at all very questionable uh, a lot of questionable things I know his family does not accept it at all, and it's very questionable to people in the community. Why would these guys from Louisiana drive all the way across right. state line to buy weed when you can buy weed there in Louisiana? It just doesn't seem to add up. However, they are supposed to be doing an investigation from an outside agency. You know, that's the other thing, too, because P.E. had the song years ago, 911 is a joke. <laughs> so on the one hand, the police will kill you, yeah. But on the other hand, when you have something legitimate, you need investigated. Crime is committed against you. Yeah. They don't care. I mean, it's not even, they don't even take it seriously. Yeah. It's crazy, man. And they come up with ways to try to justify. When we do stuff, we never get any consideration at all. But when they kill us, boy, they bend over backwards to try to give them justifications and consideration. Right, right. I even think about the Jefferson case in uh, Fort Worth 
where the police union are trying to say, well, she had a gun and pointed it at the police. Well, she's in her own house, and he doesn't announce himself. How does she know who he's not trying to break in did her she, house? Did she have a gun? Well, that's the allegation. Yeah, the allegation is she had a gun. But that's, uh, yeah, we don't But she's defending herself. It's almost like Corey Jones in Palm Beach, Florida, when the undercover officer approached him on I-95. He had registered a gun on it, and the officer never admits who he is, and... Corey, thank God that tow truck company was recording it. Other than that, that cop would have killed Corey, never identifying himself as a police, and the cop lying and trying to cover up on the case. But because we had that tow truck recording, that is the only reason we were able to get that cop convicted for 25 years, the first time in Florida that it had been done in 30 years. In the case of a Tatiana Jefferson, that's the case where 311 is a joke. He called a non-emergency number. Exactly. And the sister still ends up being killed. Unacceptable, unjustifiable, unbelievable. But again, that menacide, you know some folks are saying? Well, Mark, you know, and I, I was talking to Tamika Mallory the other night, we're trying, we got to do something. But some folks were saying, well, yo, y'all don't need to do nothing now because he resigned right away and he was arrested. There's no demand for you to make anymore. And I disagree. Absolutely. If we don't keep the pressure on, they will sweep it under the rug. So let me run somebody, because my thought has always been this. Police are pretty much governed locally, because we don't have a federal oversight thing, unfortunately. <laughs> Department uh, of Justice, Postal, but yeah, you're but right. They, you know, you know, I think we have to do, don't you think, like Dr. King did. He went to local communities, Ben, yep. and struggled within those local communities. And I don't think we really, again, Minnesota, I don't think we really realize the power we have. Yeah, because if you're in a local community and it's predominantly urban, you got a lot of black voters. You can say if you have to even say to black folks on the city council, black mayors, listen, you either create a system of civilian community oversight. Yep. Or civilian community review. Both. Yep. Where we are looking at this whole thing and we are empowered to oversee the police instead of them overseeing us, or we vote you out of office. Absolutely. I mean, social media is good, but we can't. We ain't going to be able to stop this just on Twitter. In, in the book, we Please. talk about these sisters in this little county in North Florida who did just that. Mm-hmm. And then when we get to the 12 action points at the end of the book, talking about what people can do, we talk about them. We talk about John Legend using uh, his uh, influence on social media to talk about ban the box. Everybody can do something. We all right. have social media accounts, but we talk about how you got the endeavor to try to use the law as a weapon for good right, right, because right, the right. enemies of equality, they keep trying to use the law to disenfranchise us and marginalize us, but we have several examples throughout history where People, just like you said, Mark, realizing that they have power, that you can do something. Those women going down to City Hall every week, they got their citizen review board. They got the police chief removed because it's like the white soccer moms. We got to have the fortitude like those white soccer moms once they get an issue. And what could be more important of an issue than our children? Martin Luther King said the coward asked the question, is it safe? He said, expediency asked the question, is it politically correct? He said, then vanity asked the question, is it popular? But then he said, conscience asked the question, is it right? right. And there comes a time when all of us must take a position that's neither popular nor politically correct nor even safe, but we must do it because our conscience tells us it's the right thing to do, and it is the right thing to do to stand up for our children, speak up for our children, and fight for our children because if we don't do it, 
ain't nobody, especially not this racist criminal justice system, going to do it because the courts are supposed to be there as the protection, the last safeguard for justice. But they're supposed to be like the rooster guarding the hen house. Right, right, but right. many times the rooster is promulgating the injustice. That's right. That's right. And that's what we argue in the book over and over again. So when you hear about the forced sterilization, people are going to be riveted when they right. read the book to see how many things they make illegal that are unethical on every level. And current with this Justice Department, I mean, if they're breaking the law right now, as we know they are, <laughs> yeah. they're not going to uphold the law for us. Twelve steps, folks, in open season. First, admit the problem. Two, call out injustice. Hold the powerful accountable. Four, share information. Change the focus. Five, from criminal justice reform to criminal justice transform. Six, see that our communities are represented in the structures governing them. Very important. Seven, rethink incarceration. Eight, I'm going to focus on eight for a minute. Mm -hmm. Change the mission of policing. Absolutely. Um, there was a brother who lived in New York. He's passed with Amos Wilson, who wrote a book about black-on-black -black violence, so-called black-on-black violence, mm -hmm. which is a misnomer, and how to change. Police, again, need to respect our community and our ability to solve our own problems and take some direction from us. Again, we support what they do yeah. financially. It has to be about you trying to be promoter of justice, not, you know, you have to be the catalyst for the justice right. and so forth. You can't be somebody saying, I'm just coming in force. Yeah, right. You got to right. say, I'm trying to make sure you know that you see fairness, that you see equity, that I'm an officer and we have a vested interest, both of us in the community doing well. I don't want to just be here to uh, lock you up and put you in jail. And one of the things we talk about a lot is this first encounter oftentimes black people have with the police is a life or death situation yeah, or a, a bad situation. Yeah. yeah. Why should it be like that? Why aren't you in the communities if you're going to be patrolling the communities where people know your name and you know their name? Right. You know who their children are. Right. You right. know what job they do. The fact that these police officers oftentimes live outside of our community. That's right. That's they come thing. and police us, but then they protect and serve everybody else. Everybody else right. And the government, for most people, is the police. That's the only <laughs> embodiment we see of the government. And what do they do? They kill us. They criminalize us. Yeah. Yeah. Nine, a men stand your ground, of course. Ten, in voter suppression. My good friend in uh, Florida, oh. in North Florida, Beverly Neal. Oh, yes. Uh, or, Orange or, County. Yep. In the place chapter. Oh. So she was telling me about the hearings the other day <laughs> where, now we're supposed to get our felon voting rights back, but they found a little... Yep. Tricky thing in that, didn't it? Oh, yeah. They made it, and we talk about that in the book. <laughs> they literally made it where 1.4 million people, mostly people of color, got their rights reinstated because they paid their debt to society. And, you know, 1.4 million people couldn't vote in Florida. If you was a convicted felon, you couldn't vote forever right, until right, we right. got on the uh, amendment and changed the law. But then they came back and said, well, you got to pay all your court costs. And oftentimes that was three to yeah, five thousand yeah. dollars. Now, it. how many brothers have an extra three or five thousand dollars to go pay to vote? 
That's a poll tax. That is a poll tax because, remember, when they was convicted felons, you took away all the legitimate reasons they could make money. And so you almost, in every other aspect, forcing them to get back into a life of crime just to provide a living, just to have money. And that goes directly to one of the collateral consequences of being a felony conviction. So when there was this Hobson charge presented to this 18-year-old black kid to risk your life and liberty to go to a trial with a jury of anything but your peers or take this felony conviction. And you took that felony conviction when you was 18. Now you 38, 39, and you still saying, man, I wish there would have been somebody there to tell me not to take this felony conviction. Yeah, yeah. Let's figure out how to fight this thing. And even worse, our children, how they are, the education inequalities, how they are suspending and expelling three- and four- and five-year-old right, black right. children at the same rate of the incarceration rates right. of black people. Right, and, then they, and again, they work it out, work out other issues with other children. Yeah. But our children are criminalized even at that young age. What can a four-year-old do right. for you to expel them? Handcuffing our children. Yeah, handcuffing five-year-olds, six-year-olds. We charge genocide, ladies and gentlemen. How many states still have stay on your ground? Uh, 39. Jesus. And it's growing. 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 And, and that's the shocking thing. The NRA has bought our government. So when you go to Geneva, and I, I hope you will show the direct line from the original petition to now, and even before the original petition. I mean, the police were the original slave catchers. Exactly. The Second Amendment really put that in place. Absolutely. So you have that. You have voter suppression ongoing. I mean, we're talking about centuries of ongoing genocide. Centuries. I mean, and the courts are promulgating it. Yeah. And that's yeah. what they said in 1951, that the courts, since we can't get justice in the court of law in America, now we're coming to make our case to the court of public opinion on the world stage. And you know, President Truman, and Eleanor Roosevelt was pissed at the black people, and they're going to be pissed at us <laughs> in 2021. But what we got to do, like my grandmother said, when you get a chance to speak truth to power, you do it, baby. Yeah, I want to go to Geneva with you. Hey, we're going to take a whole enclave over. <laughs> and we, we are getting with law professors, legal scholars, everybody, and we need the civil rights activists also to be with us. No, I want to do that. Uh, folks, 12 points, just to mention the last two. And environmental racism. And number 12, make access to critical financial support a priority. We need access to capital, business, job. You can't criminalize us for being unemployed. And then when we get out of the system, can't get a job because we've been criminalized. Exactly. It's just a never-ending circle, oh, man, like, like the snake eating its tail. Exactly. It's the redlining where they won't give investment money to our communities. They won't put grocery stores and pharmacies in our communities, all those type of things. And then we also talk about in the book how this whole notion of net neutrality and stuff, oh, yeah. this administration yeah, yeah. has allowed them to not put equal infrastructure in poor communities of color. So right, right. you have like when we couldn't read because it was illegal, 
Now, in the white affluent communities, when they're doing their homework, they can get the answers in three seconds on the computer, but the little black children, it takes a minute to two minutes to get the same answer, and you talk about everything is equal. No, well, no, nah, it's not equal, it's not, it's not but equal the law has legalized this. Mm-hmm. Ben Crump, folks, open season, already a bestseller. Folks, do check it out. What's the timetable for going to Geneva? When uh, are you gonna go? We, we want to do it on the 70-year anniversary. They did in 1951. We want to do it in 2021. We're uh, working with them already now. I talked to a law professor who we talked to when we took Michael Brown parents to Geneva, mm-hmm. Switzerland. Mm-hmm. So it's going to happen, and hopefully everybody will buy the book, make it part of their book club so everybody yeah. be well-versed on the issues when we go to Switzerland to talk about how they have continued to intellectually justify the discrimination just like they did in 1951 and how they uh, attacked the black leadership. I mean, we think about Eleanor Roosevelt, who was supposed to be friendly with the black community, attacked Paul Robeson, attacked W.B. Du Bois for saying that we got a genocidal issue with Negroes in America. I think these administrations that we have in the White House now are going to attack us too much, but it doesn't matter. We're going to still speak truth to power. Benjamin Crump, has the Lord ever called you to preach? <laughs> nah, I preach in the courtroom, Mark. But no, but, but let me tell you why, why I say that. The story of Jesus is about a young man who was lynched by the Roman authorities. Wow. So the gospel... Is all about him, what he did, and keeping his name alive. Yeah. So it's all relative. Wow. You are the John, the gospelizer for Trayvon and Michael and countless others and Botham John and Tatiana Jefferson. So, you know, I, I say to people, you know, whether you wear the collar or not, when you lift up the names of those victims so that their names can live forever. You know, and I said that when Trayvon died. I said, you know, what they don't realize they've done is that we didn't know Trayvon's name before. Right. But when you kill a lamb, his name lives on forever. So from now on, I even said they need to change the name of Sanford, Florida to Trayvon, Florida. (laughs) You know, but the point is that that's its own gospel, small g. Mm -hmm. And you're doing that, brother. Man. That's so deep, the parallel between Jesus No, that's what it is. Lynched. So and I, maybe maybe just like this Bible, two thousand years from now when they write a new Bible, mm-hmm. it'll be, you know, the gospel according to Benjamin Krupp, because you will have done yeah. that work. We all are in this together, <laughs> Mark. I love being in the foxhole with you. Oh, my, no children. question, no question. Folks, read this book. It is an assignment, a mandatory homework assignment for all of our listeners. Open season. You all heard me tell the story before. You know, we go to Selma every year. Uh Uh-huh. The old-timers in Selma, and this was never documented, but the old-timers in Selma tell the story that when Malcolm came to Selma Mm -hmm. in February of 1965, before the march, Mm -hmm. Dr. King was in jail in Birmingham, and he was sitting on the pulpit with Mrs. King Mm -hmm. in a brown chapel. Snick had invited him. John Lewis was there. Mm -hmm. And after it was over, they talked, and Malcolm asked if someone could drive him to Birmingham to see Dr. King in jail. And some elderly gentlemen told us they got in the car and took him 
to the jail. Mm-hmm. And when they got to the jail, the sheriff said, we won't let you in there to see him. He said, but you can go out around back and talk to him through the window. So he went around back to the window, and there was bars over the window, and they had to put a couple of bricks together so Malcolm could stand up and reach the window to talk to Dr. King through the window. Mm-hmm. And they agreed then that they, when he got out of jail, Dr. King, because Malcolm had already left the nation, mm-hmm. that they would work more closely together and together themselves go to the United Nations. Wow. And that would have been powerful. Yeah. Malcolm was killed two weeks later. I remember he was killed shortly two after weeks he visited later. Salmon. Wow. Because they saw us coming together in that way, and that would have been an alliance that would have been just too much for white supremacy to overcome. Exactly. So this United Nations piece, Marcus Garvey went to the League of Nations. Mm-hmm. In the book, it describes what Paul Robeson and, and W.B. Du Bois did. Yep. The Black Panthers tried to go. We went to Durban for the World Conference Against Racism back during uh, 2001. And then right when we were in Durban is when 9-11 uh, happened. And that kind of overshadowed some of that. But we need to go back to these international bodies. The United States tries to hold up it's glass to everybody else when it comes to yeah. human rights and, and justice. Yep. But these other countries need to see yep. what's happening to us in this it country. It goes back to what that young boy said in Ferguson. It's important that they see how they're killing us. Yeah. It's very important. So openseasonbook.com is where they yes, can please. go order the book. Everybody. Uh, everybody. And, and let's make sure... We make it our book clubs and our discussion in our schools because our young lambs in the community need to know, like you said, when they kill our lambs, their names should live forever. That's right. And we should protect and respect their legacy that the world will know they existed. Benjamin Crump, OpenSeason.com, everyone. Thank you, man. Mark. Good to see you. Love you, brother. Hey, love you too, man. <laughs> all right, all right. So, so honored to be here with you again. An honor to have you. Honored yes, to sir. have you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for listening to Make It Plain and Get Woke. Remember to listen, like, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. Also, subscribe to Make It Plain and Get Woke daily. Check out makeitplain.com to subscribe. If all minds are clear, it has been Made Plain. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. 
Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.